Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Andrew Christie. Andrew is a children's services professional who is held in the highest regard across the sector. He's been the director of children's services across three London councils. He has been a Department for Education appointed commissioner. He has been the chair of the Birmingham Trust, still is. He'll be stepping down shortly. And also the chair of the Adoption and Special Guardianship Leadership Board. So there are very few children's services professionals who bring the level and breadth of experience that Andrew does. So it was a pleasure and an honour to get to discuss some of the current issues the sector is facing with Andrew. We talked about what it was like bringing together the children's services from three different London boroughs and what some of the challenges were, but some of the real benefits. So it wasn't just about making efficiencies. There was a lot to be gained by reaching a critical mass for some services like fostering. There was also the ability from the three boroughs to look across all the practice and decide where the best practice in different areas was and then adopting that across all three. So he found it a really enriching experience and learned a lot from it. We also discussed the very worrying trend within children's services, which is seeing spending on late intervention or crisis going way up and spending on early intervention really dropping through the floor. So this is a very worrying trend and Andrew has some thoughts about that. And finally, we discuss foster care. Foster care in terms of recruiting and retaining foster carers is facing real challenges. We're lucky to be working with Andrew on a DFE programme to support the recruitment and retention of foster carers and his experience on that programme is invaluable. We are very focused on what we call a relational approach, which is incredibly important for councils and independent fostering agencies to build relationships with current and potential foster carers. So we really get into that whole philosophy of relational public services and that bit of the conversation I found fascinating and much more broadly applicable than just foster care. So I hope you enjoy. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, Andrew. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me, Andrew. No, it's an absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation. So we have known each other for a, a number of years now, but for people listening, it'd be great if you could just tell them a little bit about who you are. Um, so who am I? That's, that's, uh, yeah, sorry, slightly throwing me straight away. Um, so my... Uh, uh, my background is that um, I started my uh, working life Uh, essentially in social work um, and have pretty much remained in social work uh, throughout my career. um, And that's children's social work? 
Yes, I'm, although of course, uh, for the last quite quite a few years, I've, I've been more of a manager of social workers and social work, and manager of social services and social care services, yeah. uh, rather than. But I, I, I do feel like I've kind of remained uh, in, in contact with with practice. That doesn't mean to say I would regard myself as good at it. Uh, and in fact, quite often when I work with uh, social workers who are good at it, I'm absolutely in awe of, of their, their kind of skills that they have. But um, so I started uh, way back when, a very long time ago. Um, you, you catch me on the eve of my 70th birthday. Um, oh, you look very young for it, Andrew. Well, uh, thank you very much. I was fishing for that. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, so, yes, yeah, so I started actually. Uh, I did a, a degree uh, in what's now called social policy in those days. Interestingly enough, it was called social administration. So it kind of mm-hmm. felt much more about doing things to people rather than kind of working out what the options that the people might yeah. choose, really. Um, and that was uh, at the beginning in, in the kind of early 70s. So by the mid 70s, um, I'd started working in social work. My first experience of as a trainee social worker was in uh, in Brighton, well, Hove, actually, as anybody mm-hmm. from Brighton knows, you say. Um, and it was in a team that was just emerging from the trauma of the Maria Colwell inquiry. And right. for those who don't know, uh, whose kind of memory doesn't go uh, back that far, uh, sadly, Maria Colwell was a child who died at the hands of her stepfather and was, in fact, probably one of the first major inquiries that kind of attracted a huge amount of kind of publicity, yeah. uh, a huge amount of kind of outpouring of public rage and ang- ang- anger and disquiet. And um, and those days, it was very commonly directed towards the social workers, the social workers involved. And that yeah. certainly was the case in the Maria Colwell inquiry. And it had been an absolutely bruising experience. So the team I, I joined was the team that had actually had been working with Maria and her family and was still working with some of the surviving members of the family. So it was a, a kind of, in some ways, a kind of a, a bit of a baptism of fire. Yeah, well. And I was reflecting on that because I thought I'd start with that um, when I was kind of thinking about what I might be talking about with you, because I was reflecting that I think actually there is one change that I've, I've kind of looking back over all those years I, I have noticed is that there are still the same uh, dreadful uh, events, still the same dre- really high profile inquiries. Um, and um, but perhaps what happens a bit less is that the social work profession gets pilloried um, or doesn't get pilloried in quite the same way Ooh. now. And there's more of a recognition of the, the kind of systemic nature of these things. I mean, mm. and, and the the kind of part, the whole variety of people have to play in, in, in what lies behind these kind of terrible and sad events. Um, do, do you sorry. think, Andrew, so I was just going to ask, do you think that's because, because people, the media love to blame somebody, do you think that's because it's become so, it's become so clear to people over the last number of years that council services are underfunded and there are good reasons why full coverage sometimes it isn't possible? Do you think it's to do with that? Um, I think that's maybe a bit of it. Uh, but that is, uh, I think that sort of understanding and awareness is pretty recent, isn't it? Actually, yeah. Because, um, I mean, if you think about the kind of era of austerity, which is essentially what you're talking about, probably uh, in the period up until I actually retired from full time work in 2016, um, up until that point, I think, A, perhaps austerity hadn't kind of bitten quite so hard um yeah. B, i think that people were still finding imaginative solutions which were minimal had a kind of less impact on the end user yeah. because there, w- there was some kind of scope in the system to find efficiencies yeah um, and and see because i think you know that road has now run out essentially um yeah. and and it's plain for everybody to see 
I mean, not just people who understand what's happening in social care services, but people who drive along roads in their neighbor, local neighborhood and have yeah. to avoid the potholes. People who uh, who take their children to school and understand how their school is struggling to kind of yeah. you know, provide deliver some of the basics. So I think that's I think that's more of a recent phenomenon. Um, I think no, I think there has been a, a shift in public understanding. I, I was trying to work out what I think was some of the explanation for that. And I, I do think actually there's been some greater political understanding. So there have been on, on, on both sides, actually, there have been some secretaries of state and, and ministers who've actually come to understand that um, social work is a very difficult uh, job. Yeah. It's it's never um, fault free. It's never going to be perfect. Uh, and you can't expect social workers to perform you know the impossible essentially yeah. so and and you know and you think about some of the kind of great secretaries of state we've had on both sides but, um you know they they understood that and actually became more champions of social work and yeah. and actually some you know some people actually came to uh, came into government you know for, again from both all sides who actually had some experience of social work so i think that's helped yeah. to change some of the public perception of no, that's really really interesting and i'm going to come back later to discuss the general state of children's services but i've i've kind of distracted you from telling us your potted history so you've explained your kind of blooding in social work if you like in that really high pressure demoralized environment and so where did it go from there um, from there, it, it, it followed a fairly kind of traditional route. Um, so, you know, I, I, I kind of spent a while practicing in social work. I then became a, a first line team, uh, first line manager, team manager of a social work team. <laughs> to this day, I still think the most difficult management job is the first line manager. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I kind of take my hats off to those people who make a great success. But I'm not sure I was one of the best. And, 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 you know, I'd recognize, you know, they're absolutely at that kind of fulcrum of yeah. the kind of interface between the organization and the people who are actually trying to kind of deliver services. And then moved to a, a kind of middle management job in Surrey. And then at the end of just about 1998, I moved to my first senior role in Hammersmith and Fulham in London as, as an assistant director. Yeah. Uh, working, working with a guy called Jeff Alltimes, who was uh, then the director of, of social services, who was, you know, we all hopefully have some experiences in our working life where we work with somebody who is an absolute mentor, who's kind of, you know, helps you find your way. And he was he was one of those I was lucky enough to, to work wow. with. Um, and, and I stayed working in, in, in West London, actually, uh, for the rest of my full time career. And then. Uh, when I retired in 2016, I was lucky enough to be offered some work, mainly by the Department for Education, um, as first of all as a commissioner in in Birmingham um, for the, the children's services, um, and then uh, I moved from that into the role of kind of chair of the children's trust. And as you know, because this is really when I first kind of started working with your organisation, I also became the commissioner in Northamptonshire uh, and, and, uh, and for a while was chair of the Adoption and Special Guardianship Leadership Board. So I had an interesting experience in retirement where I suddenly thought, oh, gosh, you know, is this the end? Am I going to do anything useful? And that was seven years ago. And, yes, uh, yes. And, and you've I'm, continued to do extremely useful things since. Well, You've skipped look, all the things you've mentioned there. I'm going to come back to, but you've skipped right. a really important one, I think, which I want to ask you about first, which was you ended up as the director of children's services across the Triborough in London, which is which is an incredibly important pressure senior position. Could could you just explain what that was like? So the three London boroughs are just for the avoidance of doubt: Westminster, Hammersmith, and Fulham, and Kensington and Chelsea, and these are obviously three independent councils. They have three sets of elected members. I assume quite a lot of variation in the challenges faced and in the cultures within the organisation. So how, how how did that work? How did you bring those teams together? Uh, well, it was a, a, another of those fascinating opportunities that um, just came my way, really. Um, and so uh, actually it connects with what I was saying about 
uh, period of austerity because it was a product of what I'm going to call the first phase of austerity, um, which was, you know, as kind of local authorities were really having to kind of work very hard to kind of find ways of saving money but delivering the same sort of level of services. The idea that the the three then leaders of the three councils came up with um, was to bring together some of the core services. And, of course, as you know, in any local authority, the two services which are probably the, the spend the most money, cost the most money, are children's services and adult social care services. So they had to be at the kind of centre of this venture. But, you know, a whole range of other services were also uh, joined up in, in this tri uh, borough as it became arrangement and I was appointed uh, I was then the, uh, up to that point of being the director of children's services in Hammersmith Fulham and I was appointed as the um, as the, the kind of tri-borough director of children's services but as in, in your uh, lead up to it you rightly pointed out um, so actually I was the director of children's services for each local authority in law right um, and because that's thing- a because that's a statutory position that each local authority has to have a named person. So you, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Um, and there were other examples of uh, people who've been directors of children's services for more than one local authority mm. um, at, at, at already at that time. But I don't think there was any example where the attempt had also then been made to to kind of bring this the kind of all the services together in, yeah. in, in into one. So you absolutely hit the nail on the head with kind of identifying that the kind of starting point was three very different organisations, three very different cultures, three yeah. very different organisations in terms of the councils, three very different organisations in terms of the then children's services, three very different organisations in terms of culture. Yeah. Um, and uh, but um I mean, it's it's not a great starting point. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, but, but but fortunately, um, we kind of I think we got one or two things right. We're, so one of the things I was very clear about right at the outset was that point about culture needed to be absolutely respected. Uh, now, of course, coming in as having been the director of children's services in one local authority, there was a very strong suspicion in the other two local authorities that I was going to come along and try and impose the Hammersmith and Fulham way are on them. And, and you know, I could understand why they felt very anxious and uncertain about that. What I tried, worked very hard to make clear was that actually that wasn't the case. But what we did do, and I think it became something that, you know, we all kind of learned about and experienced, was we kind of had a model of, of trying to work out what the best answer was. Um, so, as you know, in children's services is made up of a whole range of smaller yeah. services. So what were the best what was the best practice in, say, fostering? And uh, the reality was that all three local authorities had examples of absolutely the kind of top of the range practice. And the other yeah. two had things to learn from them. And so we kind of made that a basic principle that we tried to build. On oh, that's really best. interesting. That's really interesting. Um, and of course, one of the day, ways we did that was, I mean, it wasn't quite as simple as this in practice, but was one of the ways you were saving money was instead of having three leaders of fostering or three leaders of children and care services, you had one. And yeah. uh, kind of one of the way you could kind of build on best practice was actually to um, encourage and choose and select the, the, the best of the three that you had at your disposal. Now, and I mean, that sounds rather brutal, but and I think we did it hopefully kindly and respectfully. But that's pretty much what we did. So it, um, it, it, it sounds like it was genuinely the team. The teams were genuinely integrated. Uh, yes, a lot of not all of them were, uh, and that was another important principle because we kind of de- developed a kind of models, uh, a kind of an approach which was. Uh, in some cases, you'd leave alone, you know, what was working really well. So, for example, there was a, uh, in Westminster, there was an excellent bit of work, very pioneering bit of work, which I inherited, which was uh, working with gangs. And um, the other two local authorities didn't have quite the same kind of issue in terms of, at that time, serious youth mm. violence. So we left the kind of Westminster program yeah. in, in, in place as a discreet, um, entity and um, continued to deliver some really quite um, remarkable outcomes. 
Um, I think I think the other kind of principle, which I, when I look back is what I've tried to do now, and I've learned about it, and so I've got a little bit better over time, is actually um, build a kind of senior leadership team that really was a team. Um, yeah. And I fortunately had some really good people, um, some of whom are already there, um, to um, engage in the, in that work and, um, and and to become the senior leadership team and and so it was it was absolutely a a, a team effort I think you could you should ask them but um, I think they would say they felt like they were part of a team um, yeah. and that they understood that what I was really wanted to have as the you know the, the ultimate principle was it was all team it was a team yeah. effort and and that. That, you know, there wasn't to be a sort of competitive element because that very easy, you know, well, that could easily emerge. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah. that takes yeah. very strong, strong leadership. So you, you mentioned that was in response to what you called the first wave of austerity. I don't know what wave we're in now, but the situation for children's services is to me has never been worse in terms of budgets. Is this is this a model that you think could, could be revisited by some places or is the is there just not enough headspace to do the thinking and work around making it a proper integration and making it actually work? Well, I, I it's a, that's an interesting question. Nobody ever asked me that question. Now it was it was a quite extraordinary. It wasn't a very popular model, I think, in local government because it's counter culture really um because it it, because it's all about collaboration and indeed it moved into a phase when there wasn't any more political alignment between the three authorities and and so quite quite a bit of it was kind of subsequently undone after this was after my time uh um it so and and you it worked at the time partly because there was real political will and engagement and so it, and, and actually, it's an interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of pause for thought on that one because actually, what I then, what I also discovered was it, although there was some very obvious savings in terms of kind of taking out management, for example, because you kind of mm-hmm. merge merge kind of services. What you also got was a kind of more dynamic uh, organization because mm. you were able to kind of pool all this talent. And actually, we delivered better services as a consequence and, and better services. I'm absolutely convinced about this. Better services deliver efficiencies and savings because often what happens, unfortunately, in children's services is that sometimes when an organization gets into difficulty, it starts doing things not very well. And if you do things not very well, one of the consequences in children's services can be you then actually rack up more costs as a consequence. So, for example, you don't intervene well with a child and family at an early stage when you can hopefully, say, keep the child at a relatively low tariff level, let's say in in a foster placement. The child then, you know, becomes more distressed and, and needs more intervention. And that's when sometimes, I mean, this isn't the only reason, but sometimes the, the need uh, escalates and the child then has to yeah. end up residential placement. So I do think because actually what we were able to do is create more critical mass and so therefore more um, kind of solidity in terms of the the organization, um, more resilience is the word I was looking for. Um, And and so actually, yes, maybe there are some kind of uh, opportunities that people might think about. It's also, Andrew, it seems to me it's a very rare opportunity for a fresh organizational start. You know, councils are long-standing organisations with, um, without much of an opportunity for a, a fresh start and, and a reason to relook at everything. And as you say, a reason for you as leader to say, let's look at these three approaches to fostering and decide which one's best and adopt that. A new DCS coming into a council doesn't have those doesn't have those opportunities. So. Anyway, we will leave it there and put that that's a very thought out there. Point, Andrew. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really well made point. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I'm going to just uh, jump ahead slightly to bring in what I want to talk to you about, about the general state of children's services, because this feels like a good point to do that. So I shared with you before this uh, some research that Pro Bono Economics have done 
recently, um, which shows a dramatic drop in early intervention spend and an equally dramatic rise in late intervention or crisis spend. And, you know, this, you've seen the graph, this can't, mm. this can't lead in anywhere good. What are, you, what are your reflections on that and how we dig ourselves out of this? Well, I, I thought I thought it was a fascinating read, actually. And um, so we ought to make sure that anybody listens into it knows what the kind of reference is. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, because I, I, I thought it was a kind of well um, a kind of thought through kind of set of uh, well thought through analysis and, and kind of set of yeah. arguments. Actually, so I was kind of, you know, I felt like I learned quite a lot from it. I, I wouldn't have ever imagined that the kind of graphs of spend was so starkly um, yes. crossing in the way it did, basically. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and the kind of second point to make is um, I recognize now that um, it, it is so difficult and so hard for people in local government well, people central government as well of course but you know um in local government to try to kind of you know square the circle or whatever uh, and kind of try and deliver a uh, good quality services but mm. i think what that that in, in the last year upon year of reduction in spend and of course what's happening now in children's services is that's proving very hard to achieve, isn't it? More and more yeah. local authorities are running into difficulty, particularly around children's services, actually, which is interesting, isn't it? So there's a, a, a bit of analysis to which I, I wouldn't know the answer to about. So what it's, it's, it's difficult in adult social care, but it's not quite it doesn't seem to be to be quite the same sort of thing. And I, and I do think that that analysis, a pro bono economics analysis, is the kind of part of helping explain what's been what's been going on so what what i was left struck by was a the very steep decline in what they call early intervention spend i've got some points to make about that and i could yeah. back to that um but they also dramatic increase in uh, what they call late intervention in other words spend on child protection and children in care and what was really interesting as well in there was the analysis of the unit cost per individual child. So it's and that has driven, risen very dramatically, which has to be explained, I think, by uh, well, they explain it by the increased use of um, residential care. And I wouldn't suggest that I don't think others will disagree with me, but I don't think that is necessary because children's needs are somehow significantly different to what they were five to ten years ago and of course we've had the impact of covid you know which has had you know probably a greater impact than we really anticipated on kind of well-being and, and kind of ch child development and family uh, life um, but i still think that there are kind of systemic kind of it's a product of, of kind of systemic uh, actions and which yeah. um has in, in, which i think we can do something about actually yes yeah. so, so um so my comment about the early intervention spend is i think we want to be very careful when we look at early event intervention about what spend we're talking about because i think the spend that really makes a difference is the spend that is very targeted on the kind of first stages of intervention with a family that's got quite significant needs. So I'm uh, I I don't think you know the days of kind of you know the kind of more universal provision through things like children's centres. There's any reality likelihood in the near future of us kind of returning to those kind of days. But what I think we can say is if you, for example, spend more money on educare services, more money on things like family group conferencing those are the kind of services the early intervention services that i think can help uh, so we're talking we're talking targeted edge of care rather than yeah. universal yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. simply no, because of the, the economics yeah. of it really yeah yeah I mean, that doesn't mean to say role that schools have got to play or that kind of early years provisions got to play is 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 unimportant absolutely not that's not what i'm arguing but i i yeah. think that that's probably not, by and large, the, the prime business anymore, sadly, of, of kind of children's social care services. Um, so I think if we 
think more about uh, the targeted spend uh, yeah. and, and what works, then that's that's a, a kind of way to go going forward into the future. I think the other thing, and of course, working with your organisation, so we better declare an interest on this. Um, I think the other thing to do is to work out how we can stop the escalation once children enter the care system. Yes. And well, so that's one cover. So the work that's that's being funded by the DFE at the moment on um, clusters around about recruitment and retention of uh, foster carers. Yeah, which we will is, come back to talk a little bit yeah, about. Yeah, is is absolutely the kind of thing that we need to be thinking about doing. And and then I think one of the other things, and this goes back to my point about targeted preventative services, but also goes to the another point, which is about practice and about what we do when we're faced with a kind of really complex set of circumstances is one of the other bits of analysis shows that actually some of that rise in cost of children in care and numbers um, relates to a great increase in the in the number of teenagers who are entering the care system and I still don't think we've quite got the balance right that I still think that perhaps we're I mean, this is something that we're wrestling with in Birmingham, actually. So I'm sure lots of other local authorities are doing yeah. that. Is about trying to think, well, is care the right answer for quite a lot of these teenagers, you know, who are vulnerable to exploitation, who are vulnerable to uh, getting involved in county lines and, 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 yeah. and, and so on. And one of the things I've learned about social work is that um, despite what we might say, we aren't always that family focused. And sometimes we pathologize families in a way which isn't actually good for the children concerned. And yeah. um, there's actually a kind of reappraisal of, you know, are we really treating parents as part of the solution as a part as opposed to part of the problem? I think yeah. sometimes we don't do that enough of that. That's really interesting, Andrew. Thank you very much for that. It was worth that detailed sharing your thoughts because this is not an easy an easy problem to solve and it is going to need careful thinking um i'd like to move on now to talk about your work since your inverted commas retirement um which hasn't it's been a very unsuccessful retirement in terms of actually being retired but very successful in terms of all the things that that you've achieved your time as commissioner in northamptonshire so that's a, a a position that is appointed by the Secretary of State where a children's services is failing. And your work in Northamptonshire focused on the establishment of a children's trust, which is one of the tools that the DFE has in its toolkit for failing children's services. That essentially means that you take children's services out of a council which might, which might be in crisis as an organisation, puts it into a trust, enables the the application of fresh governance and leadership and breathing space perhaps to to improve. So you were commissioner in Northamptonshire. Now, not only was that going on, but the council, which was a county council, was in the process of splitting into two unitaries. So that whole process must have been quite a challenge. I mean, I know it was quite a challenge because I you know, declare an interest that, that we worked with you, Mutual Ventures, on, on that work. But... That was uh, that was some some journey. It certainly was because, of course, um, as you know well, it wasn't just children's services that were considered to have failed, but actually, sadly, the, in many aspects of the county council were had been considered to have failed. And, I, and it was a decision actually that had already been made when I arrived that the two that. Uh, the county council should be replaced and the district councils, because that's another really important point, tied to unitary uh, local authorities. Yeah. Um, and um, and and that but that children's services should remain um, as one. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, put into a trust. And obviously, because I chaired Birmingham Children's Trust, and you know, I'm, I'm a kind of um, advocate of kind of trust arrangements. I don't think they necessarily should be applied in all circumstances. Um, but, you know, they do have a place in that armory of interventions that you, you talk about, a very important place. And I think what that allowed us to do, well, allowed those doing it, because, of course, I, as the commissioner, you're kind of a, you sit there in the advisory and, and you can make 
try and make sage comments and so on about you know what might or might not be done but the reality is the hard work is done by others um uh was that um it allowed when all the these changes and the kind of bifurcation was taking place it allowed children's services to remain as one and and so therefore there was no there wasn't the same interruption of improvement work because it had already begun, frankly, and, uh, you know, before the trust was 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 created. And so I think we were able then to, in, in the kind of classic way that trusts do allow one sometimes to do, to, to do things is to kind of provide a bit of a sort of protective shield around yeah. the around the, the service arrangement. It, it, it's absolutely important that everybody understands that trusts are wholly owned mostly. Uh, and the ones I've been involved in, and certainly Northamptonshire was that kind of model, are wholly owned by the two, in this case, two local authorities, and therefore absolutely beholden to those local authorities, just like we are commissioned in Birmingham by by Birmingham City Council. And and you, you absolutely have to kind of nurture that relationship and treasure it and value it to, to kind of create the right kind of environment because you're still really dependent upon those local authorities for so many things to to make children's services work but i think what we were able to do was to create um a you know pretty strong organization um you know we did a lot of the basics as you know well which is make yeah. sure that it was properly funded um that was kind of part of the work that you re- helped with that was a very in- interesting i wasn't directly involved in it now but i know that my my colleagues spent a lot of time on that there was um i mean i think we can probably say there was some debate between maybe our team and you as the children's commissioner and the mhclg as it was appointed commissioners who were trying to get the councils on a on a firm financial footing whilst our job was to argue for fair funding for children's services. So it was a very interesting experience from that, that perspective. Yeah, and it was, it absolutely was. And, you know, it was a kind of very kind of problematic, let's be honest. And it was a quite a problematic dynamic, a, a kind of, you know, <laughs> I think what we managed to do was to move it into a more kind of constructive dialogue. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that then enabled people to kind of move from some fairly entrenched positions to a kind yeah. of more flexible kind of separate and that required shifts in, in all parts of the system like you know these systemic changes generally do um, yeah. and um, and and so as a consequence you know we were able to get to an agreed position which by and large everybody was reasonably happy with at the end of it i think um and but and then of course we did some of the other basics which you have to do which is get the right senior leadership in place we had an yeah. excellent improvement partner in 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 lincolnshire as well we had you know great support from you guys um and and of course i had great support as a commissioner from a couple of other people who i'm yeah. going to name uh lauren coxon who was the chief of staff on secondment from the department for education and of and Claire Chamberlain, who was a colleague of mine, and in fact had, we'd worked together in in the kind of triborough days that we talked about early on. Yeah. So um, it was a little version of that kind of principle of team that I talked about. No, it, it, it was. No, we really appreciate you you sharing that. You mentioned there that you're the chair of the Children's Trust in Birmingham, which is a similar similar sort of organisation for the purposes yep. of the people listening. And you've been there, I think, since it began in 2017. What's that experience been like? You know, this is children's, this is delivering children's services for the largest council in Europe. And obviously all people listening to this know what Birmingham or should know because the previous guest was before you was Deborah Cadman. Um, so people know, know what Birmingham's going through. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that been like and, and how is what Birmingham is going through impacted the trust and has it been actually helpful that children's services are that extra degree removed from the council well i'll cut straight to that final point i think yes is the answer but before i then come on to elaborate a bit more about that i'll I'll tell you a bit about the story really the kind of uh, uh, how how we've uh, got to this position so actually i started there i was originally part of a review group um uh led by professor legrand um yes and I think we know him well. He he has been a guest on the podcast as well. One of the oh, first, right. I yeah. think he was maybe number four or something. Right, right. Well, well, well. 
um, you know, he was um, he was really interesting to work with. I was I was a very lowly sort of almost a bag carrier at that point. Um, and um, so it was, I think it must have been about 2013, 2012. And as a consequence mm. of that work, um, uh, a commissioner was appointed. And in fact, that was Lord Warner. He was the commissioner. He, he, he came up with the view that, you know, part of the problem with children's services was actually the whole local authority, which is often the case, isn't it, basically? Um, and that, you know, things needed to be different and the yeah. children's services need to be better supported to enable them to do what they needed to do. I mean, that's a summary of a kind of enormous amount of work that he did. Yes. Um, and then when he stepped down, um, I was still the direct Triborough Director of Children's Services, but I'd already um, kind of said that I was going to be retiring. I'm getting better at retirement, actually, Andrew, because I'm better Are you? to step away. I haven't seen job. any evidence of this, but I'll take your word for it. Well, I, I, I'm about to step away from the Birmingham role. I'll come on and say a little right. bit more about that. Okay. Um, but um, so I was then invited by the uh, Department for Education senior leader, Graham Archer, who um, mm. is, uh, I think is actually having his retirement due as we speak today or tomorrow he is going to. So, right. oh no, it's today. Um, so he was very instrumental and in, in, in key. You know, the department played a really big role in the Department for Education in, in that intervention at the time in, in Birmingham. And um, I was invited to uh, become the commissioner in 2015. And so I was Part, or the part of the process that then decided that um, the services should be moved into uh, uh, into a trust. Although making it crystal clear, Birmingham City Council was absolutely one of the kind of key decision makers in that process and decided yeah. it was the right thing to do. I remember Birmingham ran the whole process of setting up the trust themselves, yeah. Yeah. more or less, because most of the other ones have involved, well, mostly mutual ventures you know, yeah. doing it. But I yeah. know that Birmingham felt that they that they had the capability to do it. They did, they did. Although there was still the same, you know, push me, pull you kind of uh, yeah. phases of, you know, you can't have that service. Yes, that needs to stay in the council. Oh, yes, we must yes, have it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, all those things. And you can't possibly want, need that much money. Oh, yes, we do kind of uh, debates. But, I mean, we yeah. Actually resolve them. So, um, and then I was appointed as the chair of the trust. Um, I, I sometimes tell the story, which I will do now, which is I didn't actually step forward saying I wanted to be the chair of the trust. I just agreed that we needed to appoint the trust. Um, so Birmingham City Council produced their list of people they'd like to have chair of the trust, and the Department for Education produced their list. And uh, sadly, it was a kind of case of the near the twain shall meet. So in the end. I was the absolute, they both approached me and I was the classic compromise candidate. Um, <laughs> but, but I, uh, you know, I was really, again, it's been one of those things that I've been incredibly lucky to have had the experience to do. Um, but like all good chairs, the kind of key thing you have to do is appoint the right chief executive. Um, yeah. And I appointed, we appointed, because it was with the council and with the with the Department for Education, we appointed Andy Caldrick, who's been an absolutely outstanding chief executive of the trust. Taken yes, down. absolutely. I think our team yeah. would completely agree with you there. He's yeah. very highly regarded. Um, so Andy and I, I kind of had a plan. We knew that, you know, we're going to need five years to to get the services to where we did finally get with, with, I mean, not we as part, you know, with a kind of fantastic input from all sorts of people. Um, great support from the city council, good support from the department for education, great senior leader team, a really good middle leaders. And crucially, going back to my point, a lot of very good first line managers who were all played a big part and actually the right kind of input from Ofsted who often don't get a very good press in these things. So it was, a, and, and so we did, got to, we finally got to good after nearly five years or five years. And so at that point, Andy decided he wanted to step away and I decided I want to step away. And I'm really pleased that the city council um, has decided to appoint Andy as my replacement as, as the That's fantastic. Chair. Yeah. And, and so that will help uh, provide continuity. And I'm absolutely confident people sometimes say well hang on a minute when you still want to be chief executive uh, and Andy is very clear about this he wouldn't be retiring if he wanted to still to be the chief executive and um, so we've now appointed uh, a, a new chief executive 
um, who um, is is somebody called James Thomas, um, who actually worked with me as part of that great team in in the days of Triborough, because um, yeah. he was the director of family services in in, in uh, Westminster. So um, at one level, we I think we've managed that what this could be a potentially really difficult transition. I mean, we'll have to see how it turns out. But I think it's we've managed it as well um, as we can collectively. Uh, that is with input from the department. Uh, but uh, of course, now we've got a very tricky set of circumstances around that Birmingham's had to issue the Section 114 notice. Uh, so one of your questions was, so what impact has that had on the yeah. trust? Is, is being the trust, um, the, uh, has it helped? So I, so far, I think it has. You know, we are one of the contractors, actually, legally. Birmingham City Council has made it crystal clear it's going to honour its contractual obligations. And that includes uh, honouring the contractual obligation with the Children's Trust. And um, because we are uh, a kind of autonomous organisation, we're going to have to make further efficiencies to contribute to what needs to happen. And I'm sure the incoming commissioners that have been appointed to as part of the, in, uh, the government intervention into the overall city council running, will be looking to us for those kind of uh, uh, that kind of contribution. But I think at least we can go about doing it in the way which we think is the best way, rather than the way that fits for the council as a whole. If that makes sense, you know, uniquely tailored to to kind of what children's services um, need to do. Mm. Um, but we've already seen some of the impact in ways that actually I didn't quite anticipate so for example we've seen a drop off I, I happened to be visiting the adoption and fostering teams last week we've seen a drop off in applicants for both adoption and fostering and we've also I was being told uh, about social workers not sure about whether they should proceed with their application to um, join the organization and the kind of message coming up through all this is of people being wary of joining an organisation or becoming part of an organisation which they think is bankrupt and isn't going to be able to pay its bills. And, of course, that isn't what's going to happen because foster carers will still be, adopters will still be supported and helped with the adoption journey. Social workers will still be needed and we still want to recruit social workers. But it's a sort of, um, for me, was an unforeseen consequence of the kind of impact that, such a cataclysmic event has on on an organization thanks for that andrew appreciate that explanation and that uh, detail there that's really useful so i want to talk about fostering now so i'm delighted that you're working with our team at mutual ventures on a piece of work for the department for education on fostering recruitment and, and retention you, you referred to it briefly earlier so to summarize the aim of this program is to deliver end-to-end improvements in foster care services, addressing weak points in the recruitment and approval process and improving retention. And it's primarily, and I think this is the interesting bit, primarily at a regional level with clusters of local authority services. And it's all about increasing the availability of high-quality foster carers with the, the obvious ultimate aim of providing more loving homes for vulnerable children. So, Fostering care recruitment and retention is obviously a huge issue and reforming it was a key element of Josh McAllister's care review. What positive change do you hope that this programme will deliver? Well, uh, Josh McAllister's review came up with a quite stunning statistic, and I'm now not going to be able to quote the exact numbers. But what they pointed out to everybody is something like 140,000 people. Uh, approach fostering services in any year or in a given year 2022 or whenever it was say 2021 or maybe sometime around then um uh with with an expressing an interest in fostering and something like and i'm not going to get the numbers absolutely right only 2000 actually end up being approved as a as a as as foster carers uh out of that uh enormous kind of kind of group of uh, cohort yeah. of interested parties and it must raise questions about what happens in that process that has such a kind of huge neck of a funnel and such a small uh, output at the end. Um, 
And I think one of the really interesting things is what we're trying with in the, the, the kind of work we're doing, uh, you, your organisation team with the department and with volunteer local authorities. I'm really pleased that this has been done on the basis of willing volunteers who want to come forward in clusters to do this, is to kind of explore ways and means of kind of perhaps, you know, helping more people get through that process. And, you know, you only have to increase that number twice you know double it to have a huge impact on the yeah. on, on on and, and on the very issues that were highlighted in that pro bono economics uh, review that we were talking about and foster carers are the most remarkable children's social service work which i've been doing for so many years you come across lots of people but foster carers have always been a group of people i've just kind of you know, just so uh, in awe of because what they do is although they get you know, they get paid for it and they get supported. But what they actually do in terms of taking children in care into their own homes, into their own families and making such a difference for those children is quite awe-inspiring. It's one of the the greatest uh, community contributions you could possibly make, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to share your family with those children. And, um, And so to kind of shift and i sometimes don't think we quite recognize that and don't kind of place enough value on 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 foster carers and and this project is is in part about that and local authorities generally speaking as i was kind of talking about earlier on aren't collaboration isn't in the dna i mean you know there have been examples and i i work with uh, your organization mutual ventures in uh in the um regional adoption agency work as well which was another yeah. which was a real success has been a real success story i mean not yeah. without its challenges along the way um and in some senses it's not exactly it's not the same model that we're following with in this fostering venture but it's kind of similar kind of principle that some for these arrangements sometimes there are economies of scale that can really make a difference yeah um my colleagues working on this program talk about a relational inverted commas approach to recruiting foster carers what does that mean because we do talk sorry for the benefit of the people listening at mutual ventures we do talk a lot about relational relational public services and we're big believers on unlike other organizations in the in the primacy of relationships ahead of maybe even data and things like that you know it's what makes it work in my opinion yeah exactly so I think what it means is I was kind of reflecting on this. So when I started out my social work career and when I did my professional training, we were taught where I was about the work of Carl Rogers, who talked about mm. three things, empathy, genuineness and warmth. Yeah. He said that is the core of social work. And I think it's the core of any relational work is you empathize with people, you are genuine and um, kind of you have integrity um, uh, and you are also warm and welcoming. And yes. I think that's that's what we're still trying to create, uh, what we are trying to create more of, not to say it doesn't exist already, but we're trying to make create more of that kind of relational relationship with people who are, as opposed to them maybe experiencing us as uh, kind of rather cold assessors and yeah. sitting in judgment about, you know, well, will you... Why will you be a will you be a good foster parent when you've got that fish pond out in your back garden, which is at least a foot deep? Um, kind of, I slightly yeah. kind of characterised, but that's that's the kind of principle I think that lies behind it. That makes a lot of sense to me, certainly. And my concern is that as councils face ever tighter budgets and financial pressures, and you know, is is this relational approach seen as a as a nice to have if things are going well and and actually a traditional manager's approach to dealing with budgets is to become more controlling more more process driven you know it, there's there's something there i think which is a threat to all of this i think that's absolutely right but you know if you recruit every local authority in the land has pretty much uh, children's service local authority has a target to increase its number of foster carers because you know we are struggling with that regard um i think you're going to be more successful if you have a relational approach and of course the the kind of exemplars for us are the independent fostering agencies who generally they're they're hard-headed business people by and large 
they recognize this is how you go about recruiting foster carers. You don't have a call, call center which kind of sees it as a transaction. You have yeah. a person who goes out and talks to you. Yeah. Um, and so if they do it, they, they're not doing it because they're warm and fluffy. They're doing it because they know it works. I mean, it's very interesting, this fostering work. We do a lot of work with with um, the Department for Education, but this fostering work, which we mentioned in our latest newsletter out to our network, it's had a really positive response. I think it's the sort of thing that chimes with people, that they do get the value of reaching out to potential foster carers and trying to get more foster carers into the system. It's something that anybody can get their heads around. We're often central government programs are quite hard to unpick. This one seems pretty straightforward in what it's trying to achieve. Yes, absolutely. And a pretty simple principle too, isn't it? It's quite difficult to achieve. Yes, yes. It's not easy to create a relational approach in in any kind of transaction. But it And the business case is as clear as the light of day. Yeah. So last question, Andrew, thank you so much for your time so far. But I'd love you to tell me what bit of advice you would give to somebody, let's say somebody working in children's social care, who wants to make an impact in the way that you have, well, what advice would you give them? Uh, well, you're not going to do it on your own. And you absolutely have to get get from a very early stage that you've got to build alliances and you've got to create teams and you've got to be part of a team and you've got to contribute to to a team. Um, and um, usually in in these situations you're a member of a team you're a leader of a team you're working alongside other teams and and, yeah. and so kind of understanding that and prioritizing that and working on that i i would suggest is 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 kind of way is one of the things and, you need to uh, think about that and it, it's obviously key that you support your organization and represent your organization in building the, those alliances and partnerships with the different agencies and other organizations that you need to work with but in order to progress as a public servant you need to be building up your own personal alliances and network as well i think that's a really really good point and um that's one of the things that's carried me through into the uh, kind of my second you know my post-retirement career coming to an end i hasten to add andrew yeah Um, yeah, yeah. so so you keep saying but 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 it is that you you know when you go you get presented with a great challenge like we had in Northamptonshire what carries you through is being able to call upon colleagues and allies and networks yeah. to support you in that venture and, and 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 you know that's kind of part of the kind of role that an organisation like Mutual Ventures plays is helping kind of create and build those networks so I, I absolutely agree at that and and also. I mean, we're not very good at it in, in local authority and, and, and children's social services, but learning from others is absolutely kind of, you know, what you need and, to carry and on that's doing. A, Yeah, and that's something that no matter how early you are in your career, building up that network, because even if you're building up your network with peers, not just the people above you, those are the people that are going to rise up with you. And when you're a director of children's services, they might be something, something senior and useful in, in another part of the system that you can draw on. So, yes, I think that's really good advice. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. See you soon. Right. So lots to talk about from that conversation. In terms of the overall context that children's services operate in, I was really interested in what Andrew was saying about his feeling that there is more political and public understanding of the pressures that children's social care is operating under. And that could well be because people now understand that councils are on their knees financially and that social workers are doing the best they can. I also find it interesting to hear Andrew talk about up to 2016 or so when he retired officially the first time, how when cuts had to be made, you could usually work something out that didn't have a direct impact on the front line in the short term, at least. But his view very much now is that all of that has been squeezed out of the system and any further cuts are going to have real impacts. And that is very concerning and very worrying when we consider the conversation we had about 
reduction in early intervention spend, which is the, the first thing which goes because you have to maintain your response to crisis. And it's really made me think as well, will we see more places exploring collaboration? We're already seeing the Department for Education driving regional collaboration across a number of areas like fostering and adoption. But are we going to see more fundamental partnerships emerge between councils in order to try and reach critical mass on certain services in order to improve practice and in order to make efficiency savings as well, obviously, because that's some of the pressure that each department within councils is now facing. And just sticking with early intervention for a second, I thought Andrew's thought that the days of a universal service may be gone, but very targeted interventions on families and children on the edge of care is probably the first thing to prioritise. And in my mind, I'm thinking, is there more that can be done with the data that is available to councils, even using AI to try and predict patterns, to try and help the humans who have limited capacity to target their efforts more effectively. But that is a longer conversation, I think. So the final thing I want to discuss was the whole idea of relational public services. And I was very excited to get the chance to talk to Andrew about this. So Mutual Ventures is currently doing work with the Department for Education and Andrew's part of our team. And that work is focused on the recruitment and retention of foster carers. And this is an obvious area of public services where building strong relationships between the system and the individuals working in the system, the humans, and potential and current foster carers. Now, it seems obvious in something like recruiting and retaining foster carers that you would need strong relationships. But the lessons from this and the learning from this is applicable across all public services. At Mutual Ventures, we've got a really strong belief that public services are driven by relationships, not by the spreadsheets and the finances. Although of course, that has a role and is incredibly important. But if you don't have the relationships in place, and Andrew made this point that great relational practice within public services actually leads to savings because you deliver better outcomes and you make savings in the future because the people you're supporting don't tip back into crisis repeatedly because of those strong relationships. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Very grateful to Andrew for making time and grateful to you all as well for taking time to listen and for continuing to support the Radical Reformers podcast. <laughs>